Chapter 18 of Erasmus and the Age of Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Erasmus and the Age of Reformation by Johann Huizinger. Translated by Frederick Jan Hopman. Chapter 18 Controversy with Luther and Growing Conservatism, 1524 to 26 erasmus persuaded to write against luther de libero arbitrio fifteen twenty four luther's answer de servo arbitrio erasmus's indefiniteness contrasted with luther's extreme rigor erasmus henceforth on the side of conservatism the bishop of basil and Ecolampideus, erasmus half-hearted dogmatics confession ceremonies worship of the saints eucharist institutio christiani matrimoni fifteen twenty six he feels surrounded by enemies at length erasmus was led in spite of all to do what he had always tried to avoid he wrote against luther but it did not in the least resemble the gesta erasmus at one time contemplated in the cause of peace and christendom and uniformity of faith to call a halt to the impetuous luther and thereby to recall the world to its senses in the great act of the reformation their polemics were merely an afterplay not erasmus alone was disillusioned and tired luther too was past his heroic prime circumscribed by conditions forced into a world of affairs a disappointed man erasmus had wished to persevere in his resolution to remain a spectator of the great tragedy if as appears from the wonderful success of luther's cause god wills all this thus did erasmus reason and he has perhaps judged such a drastic surgeon as luther necessary for the corruption of these times then it is not my business to withstand him but he was not left in peace while he went on protesting that he had nothing to do with luther and had differed widely from him the defenders of the old church adhered to the standpoint urged as early as fifteen twenty by nicholas of egmund before the rector of louvain so long as he refuses to write against luther we take him to be a lutheran so matters stood that you are looked upon as a lutheran here is certain vives wrote to him from the netherlands in fifteen twenty two ever stronger became the pressure to write against luther from henry the eighth came a call communicated by erasmus old friend turnstall from george of saxony from rome itself whence pope adrian the sixth his old patron had urged him shortly before his death erasmus thought he could refuse no longer he tried some dialogues in the style of the colloquies but did not get on with them and probably they would not have pleased those who were desirous of enlisting his services between luther and erasmus himself there had been no personal correspondence since the former had promised him in fifteen twenty well then erasmus i shall not mention your name again now that erasmus had prepared to attack luther however there came an epistle from the latter written on the fifteenth of april fifteen twenty four in which the reformer in his turn requested erasmus in his own words please remain now what you have always professed yourself desirous of being a mere spectator of our tragedy there is a ring of ironical contempt in luther's words but erasmus called the letter rather humane i had not the courage to reply with equal humanity because of the sycophants in order to be able to combat luther with a clear conscience erasmus had naturally to choose a point on which he differed from luther in his heart it was not one of the more superficial parts of the church structure for these he either with luther cordially rejected such as ceremonies observances fasting etc or though more moderately than luther he had his doubts about them 
as the sacraments or the primacy of St. Peter. So he naturally came to the point where the deepest gulf yawned between their natures, between their conceptions of the essence of faith, and thus to the central and eternal problem of good and evil, guilt and compulsion, liberty and bondage, God and man. Luther confessed in his reply that here indeed the vital point had been touched. De libero arbitrio diatribe, a disquisition upon free will, appeared in September 1524. Was Erasmus qualified to write about such a subject? In conformity with his method and with his evident purpose to vindicate authority and tradition this time, Erasmus developed the argument that Scripture teaches, doctors affirm, philosophers prove, and human reason testifies, man's will to be free. Without acknowledgment of free will, the terms of God's justice and God's mercy remain without meaning. What would be the sense of the teachings, reproofs, admonitions of Scripture, if all happened according to mere and inevitable necessity? To what purpose is obedience praised, if for good and evil works we are equally but tools to God, as the hatchet to the carpenter? And if this were so, it would be dangerous to reveal such a doctrine to the multitude, for morality is dependent upon the consciousness of freedom. Luther received the treaties of his antagonist with disgust and contempt. In writing his reply, however, he suppressed these feelings outwardly and observed the rules of courtesy. But his inward anger is revealed in the contents itself of De Servio Arbitrio, on the will not free, for here he really did what Erasmus had just reproached him with, trying to heal a dislocated member by tugging at it in the opposite direction. More fiercely than ever before, his formidable boorish mind drew the startling inferences of his burning faith. Without any reserve, he now accepted all the extremes of absolute determinism. In order to confute indeterminism in explicit terms, he was now forced to have recourse to those primitive metaphors of exalted faith striving to express the inexpressible, God's two wills which do not coincide, God's eternal hatred of mankind, a hatred not only on account of demerits and the works of free will, but a hatred that existed even before the world was created, and that metaphor of the human will, which, as a riding beast, stands in the middle between God and the devil, and which is mounted by one or the other, without being able to move towards either of the two contending riders. If anywhere, Luther's doctrine in De Servio Arbitrio means a recrudescence of faith and a straining of religious conceptions. But it was Luther who here stood on the rock-bed of a profound and mystic faith in which the absolute conscience of the eternal pervades all. In him all conceptions, like dry straw, were consumed in the glow of God's majesty. For him each human cooperation to attain to salvation was a profanation of God's glory. Erasmus's mind, after all, did not truly live in the ideas which were here disputed, of sin and grace, of redemption and the glory of God as the final cause of all that is. Was, then, Erasmus's cause in all respects inferior? Was Luther right at the core? Perhaps. Dr. Murray rightly reminds us of Hegel's saying that tragedy is not the conflict between right and wrong, but the conflict between right and right. The combat of Luther and Erasmus proceeded beyond the point at which our judgment is forced to halt and has to accept an equivalence, nay, a compatibility of affirmation and negation. And this fact that they here were fighting with words and metaphors in a sphere beyond that which may be known and expressed was understood by Erasmus. Erasmus, the man of fine shades, for whom ideas eternally blended into each other and interchanged, 
called a proteus by luther luther the man of over-emphatic expression about all matters the dutchman who sees the sea was opposed by the german who looks out on mountain-tops this is quite true that we cannot speak of god but with inadequate words many problems should be deferred not to the ecumenical council but till the time when the glass and darkness having been taken away we shall see god face to face what is free of error there are in sacred literature certain sanctuaries into which god has not willed that we should penetrate further the catholic church had on the point of free will reserved itself some slight proviso left a little elbow-room to the consciousness of human liberty under grace erasmus conceived that liberty in a considerably broader spirit luther absolutely denied it the opinion of contemporaries was at first too much dominated by their participation in the great struggle as such they applauded erasmus because he struck boldly at luther or the other way about according to their sympathies not only vivus applauded erasmus but also more orthodox catholics such as satellet the german humanists unwilling for the most part to break with the ancient church were moved by erasmus's attack to turn their backs still more upon luther mutianus zazus and perkheimer even melanchthon inclined to erasmus standpoint others like capito once a zealous supporter now washed their hands of him soon calvin with the iron cogency of his argument was completely to take luther's side it is worth while to quote the opinion of a contemporary catholic scholar about the relations of erasmus and luther erasmus says f x keifel with his concept of free unspoiled human nature was intrinsically much more foreign to the church than luther he only combated it however with haughty scepticism for which reason luther with a subtle psychology upbraided him for liking to speak of the shortcomings and the misery of the church of christ in such a way that his readers could not help laughing instead of bringing his charges with deep sighs as beseemed before god the hyperaspides a voluminous treatise in which erasmus again addressed luther was nothing but an epilogue which need not be discussed here at length erasmus had thus at last openly taken sides for apart from the dogmatical point at issue itself the most important part about de libero arbitrio was that in it he had expressly turned against the individual religious conceptions and had spoken in favor of the authority and tradition of the church he had always regarded himself as a catholic neither death nor life shall draw me from the communion of the catholic church he writes in fifteen twenty two and in the hyperaspides in fifteen twenty six i have never been an apostate from the catholic church i know that in this church which you call the papist church there are many who displease me but such i also see in your church one bears more easily the evils to which one is accustomed therefore i bear with this church until i shall see a better and it cannot help bearing with me until i shall myself be better and he does not sail badly who steers a middle course between two several evils but was it possible to keep to that course on either side people turned away from him i who formerly in countless letters was addressed as thrice great hero prince of letters son of studies maintainer of true theology am now ignored or represented in quite different colors he writes how many of his old friends and congenial spirits had already gone a sufficient number remained however who thought and hoped as erasmus did his untiring pen still continued to propagate 
especially by means of his letters the moderating and purifying influence of his mind throughout all the countries of europe scholars high church dignitaries nobles students and civil magistrates were his correspondents the bishop of basel himself christopher of untenheim was a man after erasmus heart a zealous advocate of humanism he had attempted as early as fifteen o three to reform the clergy of his bishopric by means of synodal statutes without much success afterwards he had called scholars like Ecolampideus, capito and wilmfeling to basel that was before the great struggle began which was soon to carry away Ecolampadius and Capito much further than the Bishop of Basel or Erasmus approved. In 1522, Erasmus addressed the bishop in a treatise De Interdictio Isu Carnium on the prohibition of eating meat. This was one of the last occasions on which he directly opposed the established order. The bishop, however, could no longer control the movement. A considerable number of the commonality of Basel and the majority of the council were already on the side of radical reformation. About a year after Erasmus, Johannes Ecolampideus, whose first residence at Basel had also coincided with his, at that time he had helped Erasmus with Hebrew for the edition of the New Testament, returned to the town with the intention of organizing the resistance to the old order there. In 1523, the council appointed him professor of Holy Scripture in the university. At the same time, four Catholic professors lost their places he succeeded in obtaining general permission for unlicensed preaching. Soon a far more hot-headed agitator, the impetuous Guillaume Farrell, also arrived for active work at Basel and in the environs. He is the man who will afterwards reform Geneva and persuade Calvin to stay there. Though at first Ecolampideus began to introduce novelties into the church service with caution, Erasmus saw these innovations with alarm, especially the fanaticism of Farrell, whom he hated bitterly it was these men who retarded what he still desired and thought possible a compromise his lambent spirit which never fully decided in favour of a definite opinion had with regard to most of the disputed points gradually fixed on a half-conservative midway standpoint by means of which without denying his deepest conviction he tried to remain faithful to the church in fifteen twenty four he had expressed his sentiments about confession in the treatise Exomologesis on the way to confess. He accepts it halfway. If not instituted by Christ or the apostles, it was, in any case, by the fathers. It should be piously preserved. Confession is of excellent use, though at times a great evil. In this way he tries to admonish either party, neither to agree with nor to assail the deniers, though inclining to the side of the believers. In the long list of his polemics, he gradually finds opportunities to define his views somewhat. Circumstantially, for instance, in the answers to Alberto Pio of 1525 and 1529, subsequently it is always done in the form of an apologia, whether he is attacked for the colloquia, for the moria, Jerome, the paraphrases, or anything else. At last he recapitulates his views to some extent in De Amabili Ecclesia Concordia, on the amiable concord of the church of fifteen thirty three which however ranks hardly any more among his reformatory endeavors on most points erasmus succeeds in finding moderate and conservative formula even with regard to ceremonies he no longer merely rejects he finds a kind word to say even for fasting which he had always abhorred for the veneration of relics and for church festivals 
he does not want to abolish the worship of the saints it no longer entails danger of idolatry he is even willing to admit the images Quote, he who takes the imagery out of life deprives it of its highest pleasure we often discern more in images than we conceive from the written word End quote. regarding christ's substantial presence in the sacrament of the altar he holds fast to the catholic view but without fervor only on the ground of the church's consensus and because he cannot believe that christ who is truth and love would have suffered his bride to cling so long to so horrid an error as to worship a crust of bread instead of him but for these reasons he might at need accept ecolampadeus view from the period at basil dates one of the purest and most beneficial moral treatises of erasmus's the institutio christiani matrimoni on christian marriage of fifteen twenty six written for catherine of aragon queen of england quite in the spirit of the inchiridon save for a certain diffuseness betraying old age later follows dividua christiani the christian widow for mary of hungary which is as impeccable but less interesting all this did not disarm the defenders of the old church they held fast to the clear picture of erasmus creed that arose from the colloquies and that could not be called purely catholic there it appeared only too clearly that however much erasmus might desire to leave the letter intact his heart was not in the convictions which were vital to the catholic church consequently the colloquies were later when erasmus's works were expurgated placed on the index in the lump with the moria and a few other works the rest is caute legenda to be read with caution much was rejected of the annotations to the new testament of the paraphrases and the apologia very little of the incuradion of the ratio veri theologia and even of the exmologesis but this was after the fight against the living erasmus had long been over so long as he remained at basil or elsewhere as the centre of a large intellectual group whose force could not be estimated just because it did not stand out as a party it was not known what turn he might yet take what influence his mind might yet have on the church he remained a king of minds in his quiet study the hatred that was felt for him the watching of all his words and actions were of a nature as only falls to the lot of the acknowledged great the chorus of enemies who laid the fault of the whole reformation on erasmus was not silenced quote, he laid the eggs which luther and zwingli have hatched end quote. with vexation erasmus quoted ever new specimens of narrow-minded malicious and stupid controversy at constance there lived a doctor who hung his portrait on the wall merely to spit at it as often as he passed it erasmus jestingly compares his fate to that of st cassianus who was stabbed to death by his pupils with pencils had he not been pierced to the quick for many years by the pens and tongues of countless people and did he not live in that torment without death bringing the end the keen sensitiveness to opposition was seated very deeply with erasmus and he could never forbear irritating others into opposing him end of chapter eighteen recording by olivia